On this episode of The Failure Report, we examine how Harold Hughes uses his failures as a navigator on how he runs his ultra-techie tech startup. Alrighty, guys, I would like to welcome you all to another episode of The Failure Report. Today, I have a very special guest, um, Mr. Harold Hughes, um, on the show today. I have been orbiting him, his life, the things that he's been doing uh, in a lot of different platforms. And so when I was able to grab him right quick, I was so excited and just honored to have this opportunity to meet with you today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. Well, we're going to jump right in. Uh, I would love for you just to start with who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, I'm a first generation American uh, to Jamaican parents. All right. Uh, born, yeah, <laughs> born in New York City, but was raised in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and so me and my four siblings were raised there. And after uh, working in corporate America for a few years, well, I guess about a decade, um, I ended up starting my own company, which is called Bandwagon, and we focus on customer identity and access management. So using some blockchain technology, using some proprietary stuff we built to really help make sure people are getting into events and getting known as the data that they want to share versus not having all the information blasted all over the place. So I'm um, really thinking consumer focused on how our data is properly used by these big brands and companies that, that have a lot of it. Yeah. And, but more specifically for events. So like yeah. you're, I'm sure you're a Clemson fan. I, I apologize. <laughs> we but, got the national championship. Louisville got the, the title or the Heisman that year. And yeah. Alabama and us have been scrapping a couple of years. So it's been, it's a good, been good. Actually, my very first game here in Louisville was a Clemson, a Clemson uh, Louisville game. It was good. Oh, excellent. Guys, yeah. Really, really beat Louisville. I'm not a big fan of Louisville, but <laughs> it was really good game. <laughs> but I so I'm taking that data. So I went to the game. I, I bought concession. I had tickets. I had parking. You're taking all of that data and then utilizing it in what way? Yeah, so the biggest thing is, is that for most organizations, they have their data. So for Louisville, for example, they get their data from the ticket website. But mm -hmm. then when you bought the parking pass, that normally goes to another entity and it goes to their data and it's siloed. And then you buy the concessions, it goes to another entity and that's siloed. And so what's what's happening is, is that everyone has their own piece of data and they're holding it thinking that it's an entire treasure map, when in actuality it's a small piece to a greater puzzle. And mm -hmm. so what we allow them to do is de-identify that data, basically saying, this data isn't Dion, it is one, two, three, four, five, and one, two, three, four, five bought two hot dogs and two beers or whatever it is. And so we're like, okay, your average transaction and this type of information, tying it back to the person who's driving or taking an Uber or Lyft or whatever it is, I think that's the biggest thing is that by de-identifying who is actually doing these things, mm. you find that people are more willing to share information. It's the same way where it's like, would you like to anonymously review this? Um, yeah. That's the same kind of uh, premise. That's that the same concept. Yeah, Love so that. yeah, definitely starting with live events, but we see some um, some big applications uh, going into this, especially with how that industry was hit uh, during COVID-19. So we're being yeah. a little bit more creative now. I believe it. I believe it. And it's so it's so smart. That is. A, and so with I have always noticed in, and in the years I've done the Philly report, the smarter the service, sometimes the harder the fall. 
<laughs> the failures are there, the pit holes and the dips are there because it's like either you talk over individuals' heads and they don't get it or they absolutely love it, but there's a small niche. I'm ready to hear your failure report. I know that yeah. there's a story there because working in corporate America for 10 years, you don't walk um, out of the path of, you know, of the halls of, of education into, into um, you know, corporate America and then successfully into a, a startup. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I want to hear the story. Yeah, so the path is really interesting. Um, I was in corporate America, as you mentioned. I went to Clemson. I studied economics, political science, with the intention of going to law school. Um, fell in love with solving problems and worked in uh, solution selling. So technology sales, doing product management, really around barcoding and RFID. So things that we all know today, but when I was trying to explain to my mom when I first got the job, it was like, Mom, we basically do the things at the checkout lane at the grocery store. So the scanner, everything that's in that little spot. Um, but it's been really interesting that as I was in my um, career, I was working up and decided to get my MBA. And mm -hmm. in my MBA, the very last course of my um, curriculum was strategic management. And in that class is where I was like, oh, I could become an entrepreneur. Like, what would I do? So I finished my MBA on May 9th, 2014, um, and incorporated the company on May 11th, 2014. And my intention was really three things. Number one, to de-risk the idea. Is this really a business? Mm -hmm. uh, number two, de-risk the business model. Um, and then number three, de-risk myself, which I knew that when it comes to fundraising, it was going to be really important because I'm a first generation American, um, black founder. I've never been in startup world before. And then I'm going to ask you for millions of dollars mm -hmm. or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's really tough. Yeah. Um, and so the first year and a half out of it, I literally said, I'm going to focus primarily on just getting to know the industry. And so that, so far, you know, the landing, the, the takeoff point was really good. Um, so summer 2015, I get a new job. They're paying me a bunch of money. And I say, hey, I'm working on this little thing on the side. Is that cool? And they're like, yeah, of course. You work from home, you have car allowance, uh, do whatever you want to as long as you're getting your work done, which is perfect. Right. Um, so from a timeline standpoint, it is summer 2015. I've just mm -hmm. got a new job. They're paying me a bunch of money. Um, my wife and I buy a new house. Um, we start family planning, so we are expecting our, our, our first in December of 2015. Uh, January of 2016, um, Clemson plays Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, we, lose, we, mm -hmm. lo we lose in Phoenix on that <laughs> Monday night. Uh, and on Friday, I'm fired from my day job. So I went from working at a company for almost 10 years out of college, great company, getting headhunted away by a new company and was there for six months. Six months? Uh, yep. July of 2015 to January 2016. Uh, making so much more money, we bought a new house. Like Again, we were family planning. So I have a baby on the way. Yeah. Um, and we, I get fired on that Friday, January 15th. Um, and so at that point, it was like, man, this really sucks. Like, yeah. This is yeah. crazy. So for me, the biggest thing was to make sure that I'd be able to provide for my family. Um, so I, I told my wife, I was like, I'll drive for Uber. I'll work at Lowe's. I'll make sure we have whatever we need to to make sure the baby uh, we're all insured through this process, um, as well as making sure I'm able to provide. And at that point, thankfully, due to my relationship in the industry, I was able to have job offers coming in like wow. two weeks wow. later. And so it was fine. But at that point, I was like, mm, no, I don't want to ever put myself in a position to where I can't provide for my family or a company decides that. 
it's mm. time for me to take the fully burn the boats as they say and yeah. go all in on entrepreneurship and unfortunately i had been doing my job of de-risking the idea de-risking the business and de-risking myself for that year and a half period up until then so that when life hit me in the face um i was able to say you know what i'm gonna go do my own thing wow. um, so probably one of like the first um first big failures was getting canned in corporate america uh, with a kid on the way and a, and a mortgage. And Clemson lots. I mean. And Clemson lots. <laughs> it was a rough week. It was, it was a, a lot week. of bourbon. There's a lot of Kentucky bourbon that was probably drank that week. I'm uh, so sure. But I mean, what's so interesting, though, is how the stars were starting to align. You know what I mean? Because right. I see it's the age old tale. You know what I mean? It's kind of like if the bird is comfortable in the nest, it'll never jump out and learn to fly. You know what I mean? And sometimes we have to be plucked and set and told like, okay, this was your side hustle. It was going well. You know what I mean? Things were going along, but you needed, the market needed you. You know what I mean? Right. So it, said, it, it serendipitously just said, okay, we're just going to push you out here because we want what you have on a full-time basis, as opposed to the 10 hours a week that you're honestly able to give. Amen. So what was that transition like? I mean, to be, well, to be pushed out. Yeah, <laughs> it was really, it was really tough, but we tried, I mean, I tried to order my steps. And I often say we a lot because I, I know that it makes more sense and sounds bigger when you say we, and yeah. so I'm always we. Um, we yeah. There's nothing that I do without the strength of my wife and my family and my friends or my team members. Yeah. And so everything's we, if you hear me say that. But in I the beginning, um, it was really important for me to try and like get this information that I needed to potentially run a business. So I had just completed this accelerator called Founder Institute at the end of December, it's the end of 2015. So literally their whole mantra is, don't quit your day job before you know what you're working on is a real thing. And I was mm -hmm. like, that's a good, good call. So I'd work all day and then yeah. have 30 to 35 hours of work each week um, in this curriculum, 14 weeks. So I finished that. We have our idea. We're, we're generating revenue. And so it's great. Uh, one of the angel investors in the community says, I'm going to give you $25,000 and I'm going to help you go raise more money. I was like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. He helps me get on the front page of the business journal in the local in, in Greenville. So we're on the front page of the business journal during rivalry week in November, 2015. So like, okay, cool. This is going to be fantastic. Maybe I'll get to leave corporate America sometime in you know, next year. I didn't plan to leave that soon, but soon, you know. yeah. Um, and so he's, he tells me that. And at that point I didn't really understand the importance of the CEO really managing the fundraising process and knowing what it took to get the money in. And so I trusted this, you know, essentially a benefactor who was like, I'm going to be your first investor. I'm going to help rally other money from my rich friends. And then you just really work on executing on the business. And so when I got fired in January of 2020, I was just like, okay, cool. Like, let me check back in with this guy and see where we're at. And he fell through, he completely disappeared on me. Um, so I've got like a plaque or whatever. One of the, You know, when they frame magazine covers or newspapers, yeah. So I've got the front page or whatever on like this thing in my, um, in my, in my office at the time, um, but no money to go with it. Like I was supposed to have, I was like, well, I don't care about this plaque. I care about, I need the money. Mm -hmm. um, and so at that point I realized I was like, dang, I thought that I was getting my ducks in a row from having the funding ready and I didn't. And that really was like one of my first wake up calls on like how important it is for me to um, completely be involved in that process and know that every single penny, especially early on that we raised was going to be directly related to who, how that investor knows me, 
and how they're working with me. So for me to trust that that person was going to go raise more money on top of the money he was committed, that that's on me to where I should have known better, but I didn't. And so that's why I kind of want to like share those types of things. Like you have to be intimately involved with your investors um, when it comes to raising money, when it comes to business development, they want to talk to the CEO and they want they to talk, talk to the company. CEO. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's so interesting because in the tech space, the CEO is typically the introvert. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just the person behind the numbers, behind the algorithm is the part, you know, I hate to use the word right. in a negative light, but they're the ones that are crunching it all up. They don't right. really want to go out front. And it's so interesting because in my space, I do marketing for start for, for startup companies and they often ask me to do it. And I'm like, right. this isn't my company, this is your company. Exactly. <laughs> but again, trust Trusting me to be able to regurgitate your idea is so dangerous. You know what I mean? And it's so important that you trust yourself. You know it more intimately than anybody else is going to be ever able to. And then you can also keep your eye on it because I'm sure there were some telltale signs of this person, you know, mutating into a ghost. But you didn't see it because you weren't there. You know what I mean? You weren't attached to it. What did you, you know, and I'm sure that there was a major takeaways, but what kind of takeaway would you really offer to individuals who are looking for investors to really look for, you know, in a a strong investor? Um, The biggest thing is, is that understanding early stage, there's not many metrics that an investor can really make a decision on. And so when you get an investor that's asking you for data that is really impossible for you to have, like, your, what's your customer acquisition cost? Basically saying, how much money does it cost you to acquire a customer? That's a really hard metric to figure out early on. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to understand LTV, which is lifetime value of a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, saying like, once you pay this much to acquire them, how much money will you make on them over the lifetime of them being a customer? Um, what's your churn rate? Um, basically saying like, how quickly are you losing customers? There's a lot of these like words and they do mean something and they are important at some point. But early on, if you have an investor that is asking you a lot of these different data focused questions, it may just mean that you and them may not mix uh, because they don't understand at that point the risk that they're taking. And so definitely be mindful if they're asking for Question asking you questions about things on data that you likely couldn't have at that point, but also um, also manage the time process. Like when it comes to angel investors, granted most of them are going to be people that you knew and had a real relationship with. But if you got introduced to a high net worth individual and you're talking to them about potentially investing in your in their business in your business, this should not be a two and three month ordeal. Like this should be a person that you talk to a few times and understand whether or not they'll be able to write you a check for 5000 or 10000 or $25,000. Now, when you get into a million-dollar check at a venture capital firm, that's when you start looking at due diligence portfolios and all of these different things. But early on, there's just not enough data to really sink your teeth into anyways. And so it's so important for that investor to know who is steering the ship, what that um, person is really thinking the vision of the company is and how he or she is really going to navigate not only the capital, but also the landscape, whether it's competitors, market pressures, um, or any of those things. I'm Dion Stokes, and I mindfully curated the Ambition Planner for ambitious women of faith like you. I am the CEO and founder of Forensic Marketing Agency, the host of two podcasts. I've created a tech company and I'm a wife. So needless to say, my schedule is ambitious. So I was looking for a planner that was going to be able to keep me spiritually grounded. I was looking for something to be able to provide a budget, you know, 
You need an hour by hour to-do list and a culturally inclusive planner. And I couldn't find it anywhere. So I took my disappointment and I channeled it into creating the ambition planner. You know how they say in 21 days you can break a habit? Well, in 90 days, you can change your life. The Ambition Planner is the only planner that provides you a space where you can focus on your short-term goals so that you can achieve your most ambitious dreams. In addition to helping you to achieve your most ambitious goals, we donate a percentage of every single planner sold to a female-founded nonprofit organization because we believe that when one woman levels up, we all level up. If you would like more information or to purchase an Ambition Planner, please visit our website at theambitionplanner.com and get ready to start on your next ambitious journey. That is so, that is such a good, that's so smart because all money is not good money. You know what I mean? Or all money is not meant for you right now. Because again, if an investor doesn't doesn't understand that you don't have a churn rate, then they're probably not understanding even what an early round investor is. There's so many individuals right now that call themselves investors. And you're <laughs> and you're like, oh. well, that one time you gave $100 on Kickstarter doesn't, you know, qualify you as an investor, but being right. able to know that an investor would know that. You know what I mean? So even as a even as even as a, a founder, you know, vetting your investors. Again, every time somebody wants to write you a check doesn't mean that you sh- should actually take it or that it's yeah. positive money for you. Because for I'm sure. sure that there are times that, you know, I hope that never happens to you again. But I've heard stories and I'm sure you've heard, you know, your um, other individuals tell you stories of times that it's money they should have never taken. You know what I mean? And yeah. it turned out poorly yeah. for I'm, I'm very fortunate. Like my cap table, my list of investors, my cap table has been very clean. Um, it's folks that believe in me. Um, and so it's interesting, like, you know, if you look at my cap table versus the market, we are more than 50% black. It's more than 22% women. And so you think about like how different mine is than theirs. It's really because we were intentional. After I got burned that one time, I was like, nah, we're going to be very specific about how these conversations go and, um, and really go from there on how we support, um, each other within the company. That's interesting. So you've had the fortune of being able to find uh, black investors or individuals of color or even women to be able to support your industry. How did you go about doing that? Was it was it just by relationship or did you get involved in an organization that helped to steer that? Those leads? Definitely, rela- definitely relationship driven. Um, one of the things that founders, t- when talking to each other, when it comes to like venture capital, is that the best introduction you can get is from the best introduction you can get to an investor is from one of the companies they've already invested in. Mm -hmm. So if I want to talk to ABC venture fund, talking to their founders and having one of their founders introduce me is probably a better path. Um, And so that's really what happened. Like I just really believe strongly in peer mentoring. And Mm -hmm. so I've got a couple of my friends that I can call at one o'clock in the morning at 6am. I can go and visit them. I can do whatever we need to because we trust each other transparently and I can say, Hey, I really don't think that what you're working on is a good look right now. I think you should consider this and vice versa. And so once you are in the the battle with the folk, you're in the trenches with these same people and you're working and they're working, they want to see you win. And so whether that's, um, that's introducing you to their investors or both of you thinking about like how you can help leverage each other's networks. So everything has definitely been relationships and network. When we started, um, doing the whole fundraising process beginning of 2016, um, after I went full time with Bandwagon, I literally said, okay, I know that most of my friends don't have money. So I'm going to start pitching them because they know me the best. Mm-hmm. And then they will 
basically the entire thing is leveraging social capital of others. Mm -hmm. So I had my closest of friends in my circle and I said, y'all love me. And so I will pitch to you. And then I want you to tell someone that loves you about me. And so then I'm now leveraging a portion of their social capital to the next person. And then they do the same thing to the next person. And so by the time we started getting checks in, it was like three or four degrees from my immediate circle, but it was all like leveraging of social capital to where it's like, yeah, the domino effect would have come down if we had like done something really bad with the money or whatever. But fortunately, we've been good stewards of our investors' capital. Um, we've been really transparent about our journey. Yeah. So I think that that kind of helps uh, folks have the confidence that they need, um, especially early stage investing. That's amazing. That's amazing. So tough question. You know, I'm, I would assume that you were making at least six figures, you know, at your, oh. at your job. Yeah, that's the toughest piece. I mean, they were, they were, <laughs> they, they came up like, yeah. so when they headhunted me, I was making, I was making six figures before I left the other job. Mm-hmm. And then this company hits me up in May of 2015. It's like, Hey, we got this position. You're gonna work from home. We're gonna pay you this much. You got a car allowance. Like you'll get, you'll whatever. And I'm like, that yeah. great put a little rainy day fund like yeah. do this yeah no, no. and it all just fell through just like Ooh. you're standing on tissue paper yep. but i you know i wonder and i i know this is a question that we get often how soon did you actually find profit after starting your startup because again i hear it all the time like i'm gonna start this startup it's gonna be great I'm going to get my investor. They're going to give me $25,000. And now I've made $25,000. You're like, mm-hmm. whoa, <laughs> that's not how that works. What did right. that look like? What did that timeline look like for you all? Yeah. So because Bandwagon was a B2B, so business to business company, and we were operating essentially like a marketplace in some cases, we only took a percentage of ticket sales. So where you have companies that were talking about margins being 70% or 80% or consumer product good companies, CPG, and they're 50 or 40%, we were only taking like 20% of our top line sales. And so even in 2000 and 17 where we had done like fifty thousand dollars in sales well we weren't able to like pocket that obviously because we had other costs and so that kind of stuff is really really important to understand like how the actual economics work when it comes to um when it comes to sales and so that's really really important um next um when it came to like us actually turning a profit we became profitable for the first time in q3 of 2019 so last year and then at that point it was like okay it's cool to be profitable but we need to reinvest into the company and so it's not that our investors want us to be profitable they want us to be working on like taking off like a rocket ship and so that's really the big thing we focused on so we, we became profitable q3 of last year but then essentially said okay let's double the amount of engineers we have let's go back into not being profitable uh at the sake of growth and really um, taking a bigger piece of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. That is the the largest pill ever to swallow, right? Yeah. But to understand how important it is to your investors, but into your in, in your growth, you see the growth. Why stop it and just say, well, now I make you know a, a company six figures and my company is doing well. Let's just mm-hmm. stay in this idling position. You know what I mean? Right. It really is about that growth. And so even you know from that, um, who would you suggest? should be the first individual hired 
once you have identified like, okay, we are, you know, we're in this profit phase. It's just been me, my co-founder, me and a small team, you know, we, there's five of us that have been in this huddle for, uh, you know, a year and a half now. What should mm -hmm. be that first person that you tap to reach out to, uh, to kind of grow that, to grow? So one of my superpowers uh, is really being introspective. Like that is what I'm good at. I know my strengths really well. I know my weaknesses really well. Uh, and one thing I say often is a lot of people try and focus on like, being better at things they're bad at. They're like, oh, I'm so bad at gardening. I want to become a better gardener. I yeah. want to do these things or whatever. It's like, I spend no time being better on things that I'm bad at. Like, there's okay. just, a, it's a waste. It is, I'm not going to invest capital into that space. So for me, I think about the things that I'm really, really good at, I want to be world-class at, and I invest in that. Things that I'm not great at, that's where I outsource, and that's where I hire for. And so for me, operations is one of the things that, I mean, obviously I'm not, so I'm not a technical person. So I had to hire people to build it software, mm -hmm. blockchain, all these, you know, really complicated things. That's not my skill set. I'm more sales business development side. Mm -hmm. um, but to that same point, I'm doing the visionary of like, what could this company be and how big could this be? And how do we work partnerships? So I'm doing visionary stuff. And so I think that another, a really key important person is the operations person. Like mm -hmm. who's the person that's making sure that you are streamlining a sales process, that you're creating something that is um, something that could be repeatable and be done over and over and over. And if you pull Harold out of the company and drop someone else in, the process continues to run properly. So I think that an operations person is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, I also think that um, product people, um, product managers, really good ones that are able to not only effectively manage a product's timeline from um, development to launch, but also the necessary steps in marketing uh, timelines and figuring out the user acquisition strategy and a business model of how you're going to monetize the product. Those are two things I think whether it's operations and product management, those are, those are two huge um, roles on a team early on. Wow. Wow. I love this so much because you know, our whole premise of the failure report is to be a cautionary tale to others of what not to do in business to help others to succeed faster. Sure. And we, we feel I've, you know, I know that you've seen, I've heard, and I know our audience can resonate with the idea of, I just want someone to tell me what to do. Like, tell me what not, tell me the mistakes not to make so that right. I can, <laughs> so that I can do this better. You know what I mean? Because oftentimes individuals are like, I, you know, if, if bandwagon was my company, I would say, Oh, fantastic. Now I need an accountant or I need a lawyer. And you're right. like, find a lawyer in a box and get those documents, those contracts in because we don't know. We, you know, and maybe a lawyer is, a, is a, I'm just using that as an example, but you know, you just, you don't know and you don't know what you don't know. So I appreciate your transparency in that. In that yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing that blows my mind is um, how early people hire CFOs. Yeah. Because my thoughts is like, early on, you're not making any money. What do you need somebody to count? What are they counting? Yeah, you're, you're just paying <laughs> your bills. You're paying your AWS, you're paying rent. It's like, okay, yes, it's important to have someone who has a strong financial background. Maybe they can be an advisor to help you on your projections, but like an actual CFO. It, I just, some of the titles I think get kind of uh, lost on me, essentially. Oh, titles. We all love one. You know, my name is, hello, my name is, and I'm the CEO. Of the, yeah, gotta have a, gotta have a title. But it's not. It is really like, I can do all of these things. And that's what I heard you say. I can do it. I know I, you know, yeah. but it's not where my strengths lie. You know what I mean? Like, if I needed to figure out blockchain, because the proverbial bus hit this person, 
I'm going to sit and me and YouTube or me and God and him alone are going to download <laughs> it into me <laughs> because you have to be everything. And that's, that's the hard part about business. But I love the fact that you, you understand, I know my strengths and weaknesses. Don't invest in things that you're not good at. I've had to back myself up from that. And, and, and what is interesting is it's in their very example. I tried gardening. But you can't keep a cactus alive okay nope. so just nope. stop buy plastic plants spray them with windex wipe off the dust and then <laughs> you know, step, step away and work on work on what you're great at it's absolutely harold that was absolutely a fantastic way to transition into our uh shameless shout outs i would okay. love for everyone to know exactly what bandwagon is where to follow them where to find you and what's next for you guys Thank you. So when Google rebranded as Alphabet a few years ago, and it's like, oh, Alphabet's this company, and they're going to have all these different products, and Google Maps is a product, and YouTube is a product. I really loved that, and it really spoke to me because not only is it smart because you're able to create many organizations inside an organization, but also everyone has their marching orders. The people who are working at Google Maps aren't necessarily going to have the same skill set as the people who are working at YouTube. Right. And so we, be, we built Bandwagon to be similar. So Bandwagon's the name of our company. We have two products. One of them is called Aura, which is our fan identity and attendee analytics problem, um, problem solving solution that really focuses on professional sports teams, large festivals. We help them know who's in the venue on the day of the event. Mm -hmm. um, then we have another product that's just going live this quarter called Ideal Seat. An ideal seat is a white label ticket platform, which essentially means if you want to start hosting events locally or digitally, you would be able to spin it up. It would look like your branding and it'd be perfect for you to have free tickets or ticketed events that uh, are events that have a ticketed costs. Um, and so most people use Eventbrite. And right. so we're going directly after Eventbrite with that product. And wow. so um, we're really excited to focus on this $9 billion customer identity and access management space. We know that people are coming and going to these different events with COVID-19. People are talking about contact tracing and a lot of understanding who's where and who is who. And right. that's really what we want to focus on. And so a uh, company bandwagon has two products or an ideal seat. Um, and we're really excited to continue to build. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, that's, that's my, my, that's my platform of choice. Um, so if you ever want to learn more about what I'm doing, uh, it's definitely Twitter one bandwagon fan, O N E bandwagon fan. Cause I feel like I've got to be my company's number one fan. So that's it. Number one fan. I love it. We're going to yeah. make sure we're going to add all of your handles in the description box. They'll also be in the description of our podcast Perfect. because I want everybody to be able to follow you and just to, to know more about what you're doing. You're just fascinating. And I love that you're just transparent about business. You're like, I'm a founder. I'm doing this. I'm by coastal. I'm, my wife is doing this. My kids are up to this. I just, I love it because yeah. it, it makes you feel a little bit more attached to the brand. Thank whenever you. Well, you, I, thank you. I, I appreciate that. For me, it's really important. Um, as a black founder, a first generation founder, a first time, all these different things, I think that um, there isn't a playbook that's sitting on the shelf for us. Um, and because of that, we often are looking for everyone that looks like us who's succeeding and trying to find ways to connect with them. The yeah. challenge is that a lot of them are not accessible. And in some cases, you're not going to have the opportunity to learn about them before they're in that TechCrunch article or Forbes or anything like that. And so I think that it's important not only to share um, the victories, but how you got to the victories. And sometimes that includes failure. Sometimes that includes pivots. And so for me, one of my own personal mantras is um, be aware of the transformative power of transparent storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about how transformative mm -hmm. 
you telling the truth and sharing that story, that can open doors for others, help them avoid pitfalls, um, inspire them and all of that. So I think about that, like that's something that um, I started thinking about a few years ago about the transformative power of transparent storytelling. Um, and by focusing on that, I think that um, we're allowed to put more folklore um, and word of mouth storytelling back into how these great companies are being built today and will stand the test of time for years to come. Yeah, I love that. I needed to write that down. I'm going to rewind this episode a few times <laughs> just so that I can say, mm-hmm, <laughs> transport to transparent. I got it. I'm going to write it down because that is, yeah. it is so important, especially as a founder, to make sure that you are, you are part of it. You're part of that phase. Sure. What are you doing? We want to know. And, and now in this culture, we have that opportunity. So take advantage of it. You know yep. what I'm saying? I love that. I love that. Yep. All righty. Last section. One's got to right. go. Are you ready? Rapid fire questions. Thanksgiving. We're only a few months away. I cannot believe that this is already mid-year. Thanksgiving yeah. sides. One's got to go. Macaroni and cheese, dressing, green bean casserole, or cranberry sauce? Oh, definitely cranberry sauce because I'm not eating turkey anyways. I mean, he's got to get I'm, out. I'm Jamaican. We eating uh, curry goat. We eating curry goat to some oxtail. You understand me? So that right. to that. <laughs> <laughs> one platform one platform has to go netflix hulu cable tv or youtube uh you know i'd probably have to get rid of hulu as much as i try i feel like they just don't build like it just is clunky to work i love some of the content but i don't think there's any hulu originals that i'm really banging with except for i think no the boys is on amazon so no there's this no hulu originals. yeah yeah, you can go. yeah. <laughs> uh cities this is a hard one la chicago new york or miami uh i think i'm gonna say miami actually i'm gonna say la it's too far it's too, la is too big of a city to where and i tell people all the time when i'm visiting it's like oh you're in la it's like i'm in la but where though so yeah. i think i would get rid of la i think everywhere else i can get to i love chicago i was born in new york and miami's super dope but la is too big and too dense and too much traffic big i every time i'm working in la or in la for whatever reason it's always like yeah i'm, I'm there too i'm an hour and a half away like, <laughs> yeah no, no good no good okay one singer has to go celine dion mariah carey or whitney houston um so i'm gonna go celine there even though she gave us some hits but i love mariah and, and whitney i'm not trying to get canceled so. exactly so you gotta do it for the culture uh, i gotta play i gotta Anything play the audience here exactly if not for any other reason that was yeah. a true question you got a gold star there you go <laughs> harold it was so wonderful and just a blessing to just be able to sit down and talk with you i have learned a lot i've taken away a lot and i know that our audience has as well so i'm excited to see what's next for bandwagon and all of the affiliates that are underneath that umbrella and um, I'm looking forward to just seeing you in the stars I appreciate it I'm looking forward to sharing more with you all um, so follow me on social definitely check out some of my friends companies like Upsy uh, oh, where if you yeah, if you've got any technology products you need warranties for um, or buy some delicious partake cookies led by a black woman founder backed by Jay-Z. So me and Jay-Z are essentially in the same circles if you thought about it that way. Are you like best so friends? We yeah, both invested, so we're, we're basically the same. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thanks again, Harold, so much Absolutely. for this today. I appreciate you being willing to share your report. Thank you. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you to those who sponsored and supported this episode. And the biggest thank you to Sophia Mobley Photography and Videography for being the dopest producer, sound engineer, and editor in the land. Please like, share, and subscribe at The Failure Report on YouTube, 
Facebook, Facebook Watch, Instagram, IGTV, and on Twitter at Report Failure since the failure report was taken. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes Podcasts, or wherever you consume content. To get notifications on our upcoming episodes, please visit our website at thefailurereport.org. There you can subscribe to become a fellow failure and get access to our blog and merchandise. We have things like mugs, t-shirts, notepads, you know, all the things. I'm Dion Stokes. Thanks so much for listening.